Since 1937, Ducks Unlimited has been the leader in waterfowl conservation with over 16 million acres of habitat conserved. DU supporters and volunteers have led the charge to fill the skies with waterfowl today, tomorrow, and forever. You too can play a role in leaving a legacy for the future of waterfowl hunting. To find an event near you or to join our volunteer team, go to www.ducks.org volunteer. Ducks Unlimited, conservation for a continent. Hello and welcome to the Standard Sportsman Podcast, where your hosts Brent Birch and Kaysen Short will discuss, debate, and detail trending topics within the sport of duck and goose hunting. Brent and Kaysen have over 80 years combined chasing ducks in Arkansas with a like-minded pursuit of leaving waterfowling better than they found it. Each week, you will hear impactful interviews and engaging guests guaranteed to make you a more informed and effective hunter-conservationist. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now, let us jump into today's show with the guys. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Standard Sportsman Podcast. I'm Casey Short, joined as always with Brent Birch. Brent, how are you doing today? I am doing pretty good. I just spent the weekend in Nashville on my host duck season vacation with my wife. Uh, let her schedule it, the whole deal. Figured that would be the right thing to do after being gone so much during the season. And got out of town just before National Wild Turkey Federation hits town because that uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. I think that starts tomorrow, maybe Thursday. I can't remember. But yeah. uh, anyway, good trip. Um, and uh, as we were talking before, unusually mild w- weather. Um, it was in the 60s and it rained a ton, but uh, it sure doesn't feel like wintertime. No, mild and, and wet. It's just a soupy mess over here at the farm. It's hard to get anything done right now. No, oh, I, c- I can't imagine. I haven't been back to ours uh, since the season ended. And I've got some things I need to go down there and do, mainly controlling these damn beavers. But, um, are trying to. I don't think you can ever control them, but uh, yeah, I'm sure ours is a mess too. For over 30 years, Lyle Real Estate has been connecting land investors and outdoorsmen with sellers. Whether looking to invest in an income-producing farm or recreational land, the Lyle Real Estate team has the connections and the expertise to help. They work with tracts of all sizes and specialize in agricultural, timberland, and recreational properties. New listings are hitting the market almost weekly, so head on over to their website to learn more. www dot well good news is there's still a fair number of ducks around a bunch of mallards still hanging out so even though it's mild and warm they're they're i don't know working on their body condition getting ready to leave i know it's a kind of revolving door of, of birds moving north right now but still fun to see them yeah and I, I, talking to some of the some of the folks that are doing some banding and GPS work, it sounds like they're they're running into enough ducks um, to get some stuff done. Uh, I was a little worried um, just how how much the ducks dispersed after the thaw. You know, with all that, obviously the thaw and then the rain, it kind of spread the ducks out. And then they, they kind of felt like they kind of disappeared. And then it seemed like right about the season was over, maybe right after they started bunching back up again. And, and uh, I think, Dr. Osborne and Ryan Askren uh, and some of these others that are doing some some of that work have been able to find enough ducks to to make a make a go of it. And so 
That's good. I agree. Uh, them having this habitat to kind of rebuild their resources and make a strong flight back is huge. And and luckily, we did get that get all that precipitation there at the end that's allowed them to find some new food and really build back up and and take it north when it's time to go. Yeah, that's right. Most of the most of the ag fields, most of the farmers in our area, you know, they were pulling boards the the Sunday, the last Sunday of the season before it even officially went out. So not as much habitat around right now as there was. So you're going to see them congregated a good bit. But luckily we got enough precip to to keep some food in areas. Keep them fed and uh, send them back north here in a few days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got a a fun, another fun guest on today. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest? Yeah, we've got a guy that uh, I've never met face to face, but we, we've stayed in touch and talked quite a bit because I've, I've used some of his photography in the past, just a remarkably good photographer. And I think it's kind of interesting. I was thinking about it before we came online. I think it's kind of cool to have some of these some of these guys that are producing content producing images you know at a very very high level because they get to go to a lot of different places and you get a lot different perspective on on things they see because they have to travel quite a bit to to capture images that that they've uh, been hired to do or or do as part of part of what they do full-time for a living but today we've got phil conkey on uh, who's a south dakota guy works for banded uh, you probably have seen his images on numerous magazine covers or, or within some of the some of the big brand magazines that uh, that are floating around the duck hunting world. But he is a really cool guy to visit with. He has some really good perspectives on waterfowling and and plan on talking about that some today. Of course, you two guys can nerd out on some photography stuff if we get into that. <laughs> and and uh, we were already talking offline. You know some of the culture things we're seeing and. And that obviously comes up quite a bit on our episodes, but uh, I figure we get into that a little bit today too. But Phil, welcome to the show. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having me on. I've been a fan of quite a few of your episodes already, so I'm glad to uh, join in. That's good. That's good. What kind of, uh, you know, from a from a perspective, weather perspective, what are you seeing right now in South Dakota, given we're seeing pretty spring-like stuff here? Um, I would have to say the same right now. It, looks like it's in the upper 30s here um i was actually on post duck season vacation last week myself as well so i just got back a couple days ago and haven't had much of a chance to get up and drive around but uh, from the plane ride back lakes were in sloughs well what we have left for sloughs i haven't dried up are uh starting to open up and i can see little patches of green grass right in my yard my trees are starting to bud which is probably at least a month early if not more stepped outside yesterday stepped outside yesterday and heard a few uh little canadas fly over the house so that is a indicator of what's soon to be coming <clears throat> yeah have you started to see any snow geese um i have not i heard a couple people say they saw some um but generally this this the snow goose and duck and even canada migration even when we have open water doesn't really hit us for the most part until that first week of october occasionally you'll see some trickle up kind of ones that are just feeling things out but that big mob doesn't usually get here for a couple of weeks but with how with how warm it's been it wouldn't surprise me if we if we see more so i heard um i think the last i've heard of any real concentrations was uh 
oh, what's the one? There's a big refuge on the um, border of Iowa and, and Nebraska that had a few hundred thousand on it. But <clears throat> that's about the closest I've seen any real numbers yet reported. Yeah. Casey, are you still, still seeing any? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, we're still seeing a few. Um, maybe, maybe more than the last couple of years, I would say. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised at how many snow geese are still down here. Interesting. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, I know that but they, they, they've moved on pretty much from, you know, my part of the world. Uh, definitely seem to be kind of concentrated northeast Arkansas on up based on what I'm what I'm hearing. But but uh, it's interesting that there, that there's some still loitering around because it's been just so incredibly mild um, since we had that really hard freeze and that weather. I mean, super mild weather. So I, I'm surprised they they haven't kind of pushed on. But maybe that lends more to the you know more and more of these waterfowl or they're calendar migrating. They're not really weather migrating um, as much anymore. So I don't know if it leans to that or not. Snow geese are a little different, obviously. Yeah, they're kind of their own their own creature, but I would say they're pretty heavily calendar. Um, you could all I say if you came here on March first through the fifth, you would have pretty good chance of being right in the the front, the leading edge of the snow goose migration almost any year, even if we have snow. <clears throat> they just get that that urge. Right. It was it was interesting here and, and we both noted it. Uh and lots of people did. Our snow goose migration coming was delayed. Uh they were not here when they normally would be. Um well we had them here until right into December. <clears throat> oh wow. I bet. Yeah. Yep. There was people shooting snow geese like crazy in uh mid mid December yet mid to late December really here. Well, it was it was three weeks or so for us. Yeah, it kind of mirrors what what we saw down here. As far as being late, that would that would make sense. Yeah, that was a that was just the most messed up migration that I've seen in the last few years. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's an understatement. Uh, and you know, there was a lot I of mean, even, go ahead. I said even up here we didn't I mean, we were waiting for ducks the whole time. And I, I can't say they ever really came like I would have expected them to. So but there was and we had a gigantic, we had that gigantic Halloween storm, pushed a few, kind of a gigantic uh, Halloween or a Thanksgiving storm that pushed a few, but we never really saw the mass. <clears throat> when I never had the day where I went out and said, "Oh boy, they're here." Yeah, that's uh, and that, that was kind of where I was going with you know we we caught a lot of heat. We being duck hunters in the South, uh, you know, this season. That were complaining that you know the ducks, where are the ducks? Duck numbers are down. There's not any ducks, you know all that. And people out, of course, people outside of Arkansas aren't going to feel real sorry for Arkansas when it comes to to hunt ducks. But <laughs> we yeah. we kind of caught a lot of heat, like we were a bunch of you know crybabies that we weren't seeing the volume of ducks, and they were blaming it. They're, they're basically their stance was it it was the weather was so mild. How why would they be there? There's plenty of ducks. They're all in. Fill in the blank. Well, you're in South Dakota, which would be one of those places. I think if if ducks were delaying migration or not move or not even migrating, if they're just leaving Canada and kind of just bumping a little bit, you you would have seen them. Um, you know, given South Dakota's reputation, yeah. habitat, and everything else. And uh, so you're saying you 
you didn't see the numbers like you're accustomed to, even in a year where they didn't really push south uh, like they should? I mean, I, I definitely had to travel more within the state to find birds. Um, they didn't hit some of the kind of the old reliable spots and areas that would normally hunt partially because we were a little more dry. But even some of the places that had water, they just didn't get down. I mean, our, it's, it's no secret that if you hunt in the state, the northeast corner is is the prime um duck hunting area and i was up in that area quite a bit and there were definitely there was definitely birds there especially after that um that october storm but it just didn't really feel like any new batches of birds ever came and then we got that big freeze i mean everything pretty much froze i mean we were almost completely frozen in, in late october and i thought that would push a bunch of birds down and push some and then we had that big freeze again in late October and after that I usually kind of retreat south again and those places south that I hunted just never saw another push even if it got cold up north so I wouldn't say there was no birds but I mean if a person was looking North Dakota and South Dakota had birds but it wasn't it wasn't anything on beyond what I would say there normally is so I wasn't I mean we weren't like stacked up by any means so it was it was kind of confusing. You just kept waiting for something. You know, we'd we'd see a northwest wind come say, well, we should, you know, we should lose a few birds up there. It's gonna be seven degrees and uh fifteen mile an hour northwest winds, you know, we should get a little a little push. And you just I just feel like we never saw those those pushes after those two big storms. <clears throat> Which is, you know, starting to be the end of November first part of December when we, when we typically, we do still get a pretty good migration in some of these places, but just never, never occurred. I would say that seems contrary to what most people want to believe that, you know, everything just held up North and never showed up. But I think we, we posted this on social media the other day. The, the reason that, that these questions that these midwinter surveys were so important is that it's really kind of the only glimpse we get between last year's, breeding population as far as recruitment is concerned and what we should expect this year. We just got a a drought indicator that came out here recently. I think Delta Waterfowl posted it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, you know, it doesn't look good again for this year for Maypond. So all these things that we saw over the course of duck season, you know, they are indicators of, of what's coming. And I, Brent and I both don't think that it's going to be good news uh, when we get the the BPOP survey this year, but I can't. That's why we've talked about it so much on this podcast. Like what what you guys like yourself are seeing and and what's going on, and it's can't stress how important those numbers are. Yeah, I mean, I live in one of the drought areas on that map in the state, and we have nothing around here. So I don't. I mean, there's places that if it doesn't, if I were to go duck hunt right now, I mean, there's almost not a a cattail slough near me that has water at this point, and it's a it's not a small area, but it's not it's not the majority of the state and the, the places that are, I saw were in green. I think green might be a bit of an exaggeration, but um, you know, there's a little more than we have here. So, but we're not going to make up for that stuff. that's up North of us. That's lacking the water. I mean, we're, a, we produce ducks, but not in the quantity that those guys do. Yeah. And I think that's a big com- confusing point. Um, Cause ever, uh, not everybody actually, that's kind of a loose term, but there's a definitely a contingency that, oh, well, they see North Dakota in green and like, oh, well, well, they're in great shape. So we're going to, you know, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Well, they, I mean, they produce a tiny fraction yeah. of the ducks that, that 
Canada produces. And and we're never going to climb that ladder back to a population um, like we'd love to see without the, the true prairie pothole region north of the border with some water on it. That just, yeah, it just in, can't happen. Inundated. Can't happen. And there's times where a few, let's see, was it 20, 2018 and 19, we had unbelievably wet springs um, around home here. And, and it was a noticeable difference in the number of birds that were raised. Um, you could, you could go for a cruise in early May and just see ducks everywhere. Um, a year like this, you know, I'll probably drive 20 miles and maybe not hardly see a duck. So it, it, it definitely can help and contribute to that. Um, especially I think on certain species, um, you know, we, we probably aren't raising as many pintails, uh, probably as many mallards as up north does. We got, we'll raise a lot of teal and we'll see big bumps of that kind of stuff in local birds. <clears throat> but we're not making an impact on the on those species that are actually the most dire of straits right now. Yeah, it's interesting. I think if you, I could be wrong about my numbers, but if you look back at 18 and 19, you guys had record amounts of water. I mean, just as good as it has maybe ever yeah, been. It was unbelievable. It, yeah. And we still didn't really see that much of a bump, especially like we talk about on mallards, you know, certain species it helped, but it still did really offset the lack of production. You know, we've kind of been in that negative decline since almost 2016. Um, so again, I think it's important to note that some of our listeners are going to look at that map and see we're, we're good. That spot's good. Yeah, but you need to understand that spot does not produce what uh, what Prairie Canada does. No, they're not. That's not sending the the mega flights down anywhere. Yeah, it'll it'll help for the local hunters for their first you know, couple of weeks for sure, and they'll notice it. But you won't. But in terms of you know a mass migration, probably almost negligible. The difference that you'd see out of that kind of stuff, I would say. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then we had the two years we didn't fly. Um, and I don't recall what the conditions were, but you know, we had 2020 and 2021. So we got, we got a two year gap that we took a, we took about a 2 million duck, duck hit, you know, as far as bee pop count goes with mallards. Um, but you know, what happened, what happened in that, those two years that, that we didn't fly and don't have any data to, to point to. Um, so, uh, you know, I think when, I think that year, that you're talking about, I want to say we had around 9 million mallards in the bee pop that was, that was so wet. And then we wake up and now we're, you know, three years later and we got six. six. So, I mean, you know, I always wonder, I've always, I used to always think that, you know, that the, as long as the numbers were just high in the millions, like, Oh, you'd never notice the difference between six and 10, but it sure seems like you notice a difference now. <clears throat> I always figured you'd, I could drive around and maybe I was spoiled living here. I always figured you could just drive around and still find some ducks, no matter what, and so on a spot that maybe hadn't got harassed yet. But when you start to cut those numbers down, everything gets found and, and those ducks just don't exist anymore. And it was noticeable. So whether it's a, you know, it's probably a combination of less ducks and less habitat and more hunters, but you know, the less ducks will, will certainly, certainly makes it evident what's going on when you uh, start cutting it down by that much. <clears throat> That's right. I think if you dumped 4 million more mallards, you know, in the flyway, 
a lot of people's problems are going to go away. A lot of the complaints that we have about mild winter or pressure or all of these other things really yeah, because some some when you've got some X percent of those are going to just migrate no matter what. That's so right. Pe- so people are going to see them, and that's you know a few hundred thousand ducks more in all these areas that people aren't seeing them. So they're going to show up, and people won't really have that. It won't be such a big concern. Such it won't be exacerbated like it has been now. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, I'm curious. Uh, we can sit here and talk problems with ducks forever. Uh, seems like Brent and I do that most every episode anyway. <laughs> but I'm curious of, kind of about your background and how you got started uh, in the outdoor industry. Um, so I've kind of been, I mean, since I was little, I grew up in southern Minnesota. And we had, uh, my dad hunted, of course, when I was younger. And, and that was the thing, of course, got me started. I mean, the minute that I could go with, you know, I watched him get decoys ready and have duck calls and all that stuff. And so I was, I was, I've been interested in ducks since I was six or seven years old. And I was lucky to live in a small town. We had a couple of lakes in town that I could ride my bike to. And back then they were actually almost cattail marshes. And um, I'd ride my bike and sit on the shore and watch ducks and identify ducks and took my little falks. WA 11 down on the shore and blow a duck call at him and try to learn how to hide and all that kind of stuff and just pretend like I was hunting, even though I really didn't know what I was doing. So that's what got me. And ever, I mean, there was never been really a time when I was growing up where like that was not the main thing I was interested in, even in high school, high school sports and in college. Like I based, I based my high school sports around hunting so i could i would i didn't play football because it interfered with my duck hunting season <laughs> um i i played tennis instead in high school because that was in the spring and then i didn't play in college because it extended into the fall and so i just duck hunting. i had all my classes scheduled around scheduled around uh so i could duck hunt every other day and on the weekends if i could if i wasn't working so i mean it's always been something that has been the key the key point in my life and i just um and when I went to college and graduated, worked for a couple of years, um, doing a few different jobs. And then went, we, uh, they just built a new Cabela's store back when Cabela's retail stores were kind of a, a big deal yet. And they built it 15 miles away from my hometown. And I went over there and just started a full-time job and kind of worked my way up to like assistant store manager. And, you know, through that, I got to know a whole bunch of people, um, in the industry and other jobs and throughout Cabela's and other places. And then once I started the photography thing um, more seriously, I just opened up a whole bunch of other doors and I was lucky to um, get a job with Banded that, you know, combined some of my retail and outdoor experience along with my photography experience and duck hunting experience as well. So it all just blended perfectly. But really i i can't hardly see myself doing anything else other than something duck hunting related well let's talk a little more about your your path with with banded so you you got on there and got started um what time frame would that have been um it was 2018 is when i started it was when uh cabela's was just taken over fully taken over by bass pro and um i you know it, the job had changed a bunch over the years and this wasn't the same as it used to be. 
so I was I was thinking about kind of leaving anyways right before turkey season started and take a couple months off and turkey turkey hunt a bunch and then look for a job and February 1st rolled around and they had a big um re uh how would you call it readjustment of labor or whatever and I had the opportunity to either stay and, and basically take on a whole bunch more stuff for pretty much not any more money or I could take a pretty decent severance package and I said um there wasn't even I mean immediately as you said I said yep that's the deal let's go <laughs> so I pretty much had uh better part in almost a year off and got paid and just enjoyed my time and and in that time period I had um done a little bit of uh um contract work um for the guys that banded it one of the guys that I know um, is actually from my hometown so that worked out well and then I told him after some point in time so well, you know i don't work for cabela's anymore and he said what and he said well would you be interested in something working here i said yeah i would so you know a couple months went by and we arranged all the specifics and i think i started full-time in uh mid-november of that year and i've been going over going ever since <clears throat> well that was a, a little bit of a loaded question there um I don't know if I've mentioned it here on the show before, but I think it's an interesting dynamic. You go back and look at kind of the history of retail and that part of the outdoor industry, you know, eons ago, you, you didn't have catalogs. You certainly didn't have the internet. You had to go to a store and purchase mm -hmm. something. And then, you know, we start to get the Cabela's and the Max catalogs and all that evolves. And then we end up kind of in the, the pro staff era of the outdoor oh, industry. And you've seen yeah. that the promotional staff has, has gone yeah. away now, but now yeah. we're, we're living in the influencer world with social media. So and I'm sure in your time there at Bandit, you've seen a, a good amount of change across that. Um, what are your what are your thoughts on this influencer era that we're living in? Good, bad, otherwise, what do you think about it? Boy. <laughs> um loaded question. Number two, <laughs> it is, it is, but I mean, I definitely have feel, I, I have feelings both ways. Um, so having a, a large Instagram following myself, um, I think there's right and wrong ways that it can all be done both for, in many aspects, both for the personal appearances, uh, brand appearances, uh, resource and hunting appearances, um, there's, you know, with the, the, the biggest change I think that has come and maybe this started with the pro staff era was the, the direction of the me, me, me focus on me as mm -hmm. opposed to focus on the resource and focus on the birds and focus on the experience. Um, <clears throat> which is what I've always tried to try to do and why I've, I've kind of resisted the the label of being called an influencer. Um, I don't feel like anyone's going to ever come to my page and feel like they're being influenced to do something. Um, I, you know, I wear the clothes, I wear the waders, I use our decoys and, and they show up in pictures that I take. Um, but I, I'm not, I'm not doing it in a way that's, you know, here, this is the only stuff you can wear. This is going to determine your success or failure. Um, I try to, I try to keep, the focus on the experiences and the values that hunting brings with it and that what we can bring to the hunting world 
and respect for the birds and respect for all the resources. Um, so I think in how it, it's almost on an individual basis, because there's a, there's a fair amount of people who I think do it right. Um, there's probably way more who are in it for the wrong reasons, whether it's, whether it's uh, short-lived fame or some gear or something else that they think that comes out of it that really probably isn't going to come out of it. Um, I mean, I've got one of the bigger water following Instagram pages and I can go walk around almost any uh, waterfall festival and be unrecognized. <clears throat> and I like that. I don't, I don't want it to be about me, but it doesn't, you know, you're not, I'm not making big chunks of money off. I maybe pay for, maybe pay for my expenses in a year <clears throat> um, through that part, like through the, the actual, like just the wildlife photos that I do. <clears throat> and, you know, I'm not trying to monetize it. And I think as soon as, as soon as someone gets into that realm, so many things change just in, in what, what is gleaned out of, gleaned out of um, one of those accounts that that's where the bad stuff start to come in. And, you know, you get, and I, I've heard you guys talk about it, you know, all the kill shots and the pile shots and, um, you know, people just kind of sell their souls and they sell their places out and they sell their buddies out. And at that point, it it just gets kind of gross to me and I have a hard time with it. And, and that's and my job at Band is to work with the people that we would call influencers. And, and I think we have a really good group of guys that, you know, we've kind of selected the ones that aren't going to be like that. Not that all brands by any means have them. Some have, you're going to, you'll probably have some of that across the board a little bit here and there. Um, so I try to limit myself from seeing the bad stuff. I'm pretty quick to uh, hit the unfollow button. <laughs> um, if, if someone did post a bunch of stuff that just annoys me or bugs me. Um, so, yeah, I know I, mean, I could probably talk about individual or not individual, but just so many aspects of that forever. Um, you know, one of the biggest things lately that's just driven me crazy is the, and it came up today is the spot naming from influencers on YouTube or on Instagram and people giving away, giving away their hunting spots all so they can get a few minutes of TV time or maybe get a few more people to buy their decoys or whatever the hell they're selling that, you know, they think they're going to get a little bit of goodwill from doing that. And all you're doing is just, just irritating the, the people that live in those specific areas. <clears throat> Yeah, probably a lot. Right? Yeah, and it was a, that's a good point that you brought up kind of early on uh, talking on this topic. Is there there definitely were some brands that kind of propped some guys up, um, and no fault to theirs. I mean, one of them is a really good close friend of Casey and I's boys. I mean, Jim Ronquest is definitely one of those guys I would in, include in one of those early influencers. And mm -hmm. Jim has been on the show, and and. Uh, you know, good friend. Talk to him. We talked to him all the time, but he was one of those guys, and he made duck hunting look really cool, and because yeah. it is, and yeah. So you, ha I think what what happened, or I don't think this is what happened. A lot of people decided, man, that that dude is cool, and duck hunting is cool. I want to do it, and I'm and I'm going to create my own uh, channel, whether or my own path to to being a a guy mm -hmm. like him. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Tony, Tony Vandemore. I don't know Tony Vandemore. He's another one, though. He was one of those early guys that kind of got pushed oh, to the sure. forefront uh, and made duck hunting look really cool to the masses. And and great, great 
uh, you know, promoting the sport and all that, all that stuff. But it's created a this whole roster of people that I guess want to be influential or, or or think they're influential, but really not. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's got a contingency of duck hunters chasing the wrong thing. I mean, you can. I, I'll look on my uh, just look on like an Instagram page, and I'll you know someone oh someone so and so followed you, and you click on their page, and like twenty five percent of them have got a YouTube hunting channel. And I'm like, <laughs> it it blows my mind that there's that many people consuming that much stuff about it for one, <clears throat> um, and and it's all go and they're all trying to get that they're coming for they're coming for sponsorships and they're coming for free gear and partnerships and yada 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 and and i get a lot of that through work too i see that and i mean i always ask okay well what are you know what are we getting in return and the answer is generally you know minimal minimal what we're getting and but you know they're just they're looking for that connection to a brand and they're looking for that that little bit of something you can hang a hat on to be connected connected to a brand because all of a sudden then you're a big name guy or whatever whatever you take out of that and um yeah i mean that going back to those guys they're the ones who they were kind of that first ones that were outside of the you probably really could go back to like the barney caliph days and uh fred zinc days when they had you know vhs tapes mm -hmm. and then you transition to jimbo and um and vandemore and, and that whole crew and then and then, you know, almost have wiped that slate clean now with the newest ones on social media. I mean, I, I almost wonder if, if a, even 50% of 20 year olds know who Fred Zink is now. <clears throat> and I think we're probably all about the same age. And I remember when I was young, I mean, he was the guy that you know, everybody was like, God, if I could just hunt with Fred Zink, just think what that would be like. <laughs> well, yeah, and I'm old, I'm old enough to even... have the Phil Robertson, to, you know, the Duck Commander tapes from back in oh, yeah. that day that was he was definitely up there but yeah you know you had a bunch of he hunting was. shows back in the day you just those hunt, those shows didn't have the reach that obviously social no. media has well, you, it kind of goes back to the and this actually leads in another thing i always think about with this is you had to seek out that information back in mm -hmm. in 2000 or 1999 you had to seek out the the videos and the media and all that information and and it goes to the same same thing why all of these hunting places are being so inundated with with new hunters is that the information is just so readily available it you don't even have to look for it it's pushed to you now you like not only the the hunting and youtube videos but the names of the places and how to hunt them how to get licenses and what kind of boats you need and what you can expect when you get there and all that type of stuff it's literally handed handed to you so you have um just stuff given to you on a platter and and people are going to take advantage of that which i mean i've i've taken advantage of i've hunted some a handful of places the last few years that you know you see someone that looks like they had a good hunt and you go and find where they live find them on facebook oh here's where they live zoom out on google maps and uh oh i bet you that's where he hunts let's check what the water level needs to be to be flooded I mean, everything is right there for you. And sometimes they'll even tell you that stuff if they if they're naive enough. So I think that the way that 
we just get information. It's uh, it's changed so much and made all that so different. Well, yeah, and the imagery is There's improved a- too. I mean, you got. I mean, obviously, I'm not categorizing these guys in your league because you're a remarkably good photographer, but there, there's a lot of quality imagery available now. Cause oh, for people, sure. I guess maybe they dream of being a Lee Jost or a, a Phil Conkey or, you know, you know, Doug Snucky, all these guys that are have yep. got this long track record of just awesome imagery in the waterfowling world, but they can take, you know, really good pictures and they maybe there's follow a around a guy that, that has, you know, a couple thousand followers. Uh, but it just it just yep. is inundated with all of that, and and it and I don't know if they ever even try to get their imagery in magazines or uh, you know sell a photo for a cover here or whatever it is. They're just taking photos of their buddies so they can put it on their social media and say, "Hey, mm-hmm. look, look at us." Yep, that's there's a lot of that, and and some of those guys are really really good photographers, and and those and a lot of those people are the ones that. I try to look forward to to work with if well, you know and to see what their motivations are you can because you can get that out of just what their page is and read their captions and and read their hashtags and look at the photos <laughs> and if you've got the guys that you know that look like they're legit you know i'll reach out to them a lot of times we'll work with those folks but then you can see the other ones who are solely in it <clears throat> just to get attention and, and just to get a whole bunch of followers for really no other reason than to have followers um, you know, I've had, I've had a couple of friends reach out to me in the past that, Hey, my nephew loves to hunt and such and such. And what she get involved with? And I'm like, you know, it's hard. And then there's a lot of people trying to do the same things, but you can definitely get into it. And I said, just, you know, stay away from this or that, that aspect of it. And, but what do they always do? They turn to this or that aspect because it's the, it's the easy way to, uh, to kind of get famous in that. And I don't know what it's going to lead to, um, long longevity in the industry before them but you know they've got that short-term uh, gain right there so are you saying that uh if someone were to go out and start using the hashtag make them pay rent that would not help them get a <laughs> partnership deal with somebody uh well hopefully <laughs> hopefully not any of the big brands i mean god i would hope not but uh, and, but a lot of these little these little smaller brands i mean that's what they're all about you know, because they don't have a, you know, they don't have a retail dealership to, to stay respected with, and they don't have a, you know, other partnerships that they need to, to stay respected with. They can just go out and show whatever they want. And they, and there's a, undoubtedly a certain percent of this, uh, of the hunting world that, that they love seeing that and they love hearing that and they'll, and they'll jump around and there's, and there's, I mean, there's several brands that, really are big these days and that's pretty much what they're built on yeah well so i've got a question i'll I'll say this real quick there's definitely some positive to this influence or this reach that people have and we talked about it a little bit in our our youth episode that we did a few weeks ago there's so much more out there there's more information there's better gear there's all these things and, and we are the beneficial recipient of that um so things a lot of things are easier in a good way and and better for sure. As a duck hunter, there's definitely some negative of that. But you mentioned something interesting there. You mentioned retail and some of these smaller brands, businesses, kind of having to go about it a different way. Can you shed some light maybe on that or maybe your opinions? Some of these direct-to-consumer brands, I feel like, rely a lot more heavily on 
influencers and on social media because they don't have the opportunity to have a customer walk into a store and physically put their hands on their merchandise. So is that a different marketing strategy? Are they having to work harder in different areas to overcome that? Oh, I'm sure. Um, you know, obviously we're, we're not just direct. We, we do sell direct to consumer, but it's not our focus by any means. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, you can, I mean, you can see the difference in those, in those brands. I mean, you could almost take someone who didn't know anything about the hunting industry and probably show them the, uh, the social media pages of two, you know, direct online only versus two retail based brands. And they could probably pick out which was which within the first 12 posts, I would think, um, you know, they're, they're posting on it. They, they tend to go for that. Um, what do you call it? like a, like a gang attitude, you know, like you're part of the gang mm-hmm. where the more, the more catchy stuff, the different phrases, um, you know, that type of stuff. And it's not, it's not necessarily worse. It doesn't have to be, it can be, it can be used in a bad way. Um, but I think that's the, the difference. Cause like you said, they don't, they don't have the option of someone walking into Cabela's or Max or wherever it might be the local local uh, store and just seeing their jacket or their, their pants or their decoys, you have to, you have to develop that drive to get it outside of the store since there's no, no option for that. And you have to, you have to push them to make an order online rather than drive to the store and see it and just conveniently pick it up and throw it in the back of the truck and go home. That clickiness, I guess you could call it. And they tend to have that and have had it since I've really paid attention. And if they can keep it from fading, I mean, that's the hard part. You know, there's always, there's always a new, a new click to come around the corner as we've seen with, you know, multiple brands in the past few years. saw some risen and fallen and jumped out of the woodwork to, to bring something new quick. And then it doesn't, if they don't change it and, and I don't think you can keep that. I don't think you can keep that. Um, that level maintained for too long a time because pretty soon that that thing that made people come to you is going to wear off and you have to offer more than just that <clears throat> yeah and it seems a lot of them are you know not, not the not the larger direct-to-consumer ones because they they take some some different initiatives and and things that are in a positive way it seems like a lot of the mid-size i guess you'd call them to to smaller they're all kind of they're all kind of branded the same they all kind of seem like they're chasing the same audience um and i don't see any of it really pointed towards you know the resource or towards conservation or towards where's this sport going to be in 5 10 15 years it's it's kind of the wham bam oh, no. thank you ma'am uh yeah what what can they pull out and put in their pockets in the next five years? Yeah. And it's just, is, is, if you want to stand out and be different. <laughs> maybe some of them should think about that and maybe think about it. You know, if this sport fades out, this, this cool lifestyle that you're living, cause you got this, this brand that's got a, you know, some appeal to, to, to faction of duck hunters, duck hunting declines and they quit duck hunting. Where's your company going to be? So you'd think they would maybe take the, the thought process, maybe I should, you know, think about some of this perpetuating this sport versus, mm-hmm. you know, turn and burn. 
become invested in the future of it and and get those people that are are in it for the long haul. <clears throat> yeah, and that's hard. I mean, yeah, I was wondering make what, investing cool. Yeah, exactly. The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Waterfowl hunters deserve to have a set of waders that can excel year in and year out throughout the duration of the season. So Sika Gear set out to build the best pair of waders ever. Constructed from Gore-Tex Pro Laminate, the face fabric offers added durability and is breathable in active working conditions while completely sealing out the elements. Importantly, they proudly stand behind all of their Delta Zip waiter features with their 100% serviceable guarantee. And I'm speaking from experience as I have sent my original pair of Sika waders from the 2018 season back twice without a hiccup. Engineered to outwork, outlast, and outhunt everything else in the market, the Delta Zip waiter from Sika Gear is the gold standard for reliability. The Chatham jacket from Tom Beckby features the durable, weatherproof, 8-ounce wax shelter cloth shell that develops a great-looking patina with use. I've actually worn this jacket the last couple of seasons and appreciate the shorter cut to it so it fits great inside my waders. It's also a really good weight for most Arkansas days of field. So if you like to mix a little vintage look with your technical gear waders, this is the jacket. You can find the jacket online at TomBeckby.com. You can also find it in their brick-and-mortar locations in Wilson, Arkansas, Birmingham, Alabama, and the new store in Oxford, Mississippi. I always wonder what, you know, you kind of mentioned that as the lifestyle fades out, I always wonder how how much that really is. Because, I mean, from a personal aspect, for my own hunting, like, okay, great, let some of these people go away. We don't need them. Uh, we've got enough, we've got enough pressure, but then of course, from the business side, you know, everybody that, that works with any industry is going to, and they want more people involved because it's more people to buy their stuff. I don't think that's probably a secret to, to anyone. Um, but I just always wonder, like, you think, God, this year was so rough. Do you think they're maybe not going to come this year? Last year was rough. Are they like, you just don't, you never see it. I don't see it fall off very much. So I don't know what it takes to how much things have to change before people actually do quit. The mm. that certain there's a certain group of people I think that are just always going to stick with it. The people are going to stick around even if duck limits go down to two, and you know you get a 30 day season. Are people still going to? Are you going to still have 80 percent of your hunters still, or 90? Yeah, that makes me wonder sometimes. You know, AHM is set up to manage for maximum opportunity, and not that it's done with the ill intent. But I, I wonder sometimes if, if our goal is maximum opportunity, are we are we setting that as our goal to retain hunters? And we all know that we need to retain hunters. We need conservation dollars. We need yeah, all those things. Sure. But yeah, I mean, to kind of to your point, is that why we're doing it? And if so, is it? more harmful than good at this point would we we be better off would hunter satisfaction be better if we had half as many days and twice as many ducks uh i don't want to see days reduced i mean I, the no. industry is part no, of my life and livelihood but it's mm -hmm. i don't know it's at a tipping point i guess maybe right now i mean i i've hunted enough in the central and uh, Mississippi and a little bit in the Pacific flyway where you can shoot seven mallards. And honestly, like I didn't have any more enjoyment out of shooting seven mallards than I did out of four. You don't, I think, I think we're so, I think it's just become so ingrained on us that the limit 
is the thing. And I, and mm-hmm. I try as much as anyone to not focus on a limit, but it's so, it's so built in to a hunter these days. I think that it's hard to not just be, Oh, we got our four and we shot our four greenheads each in uh, Arkansas. We're our happy as could be. If the limit would have been five and we shot four, we probably be like, Oh, that was okay. Could have shot the same amount of ducks, but because you didn't get to that number, it feels different. So I think if you make a limit three, I don't know that. I mean, I, I'll guarantee that hunter satisfaction would go up through the roof probably because way more people would shoot them. They wouldn't be out there as long. There'd be more ducks around. They'd be getting less pressure. So many th- other things would fall in line that would just make the hunts better and they would just be shorter. So I think, I think that's something for sure that, and I know you guys have talked about it a bunch where they don't more likely to reduce days than, than limits, which stinks because everybody wants to be out doing it as much as they can. But if it doesn't, sure. if it doesn't help the resource as much, I mean, it doesn't make sense to do it that way, but that's what everybody wants. And yeah, it's an interesting way of, of looking at it. We know that from a harvest tool that numbers don't kill ducks days do. So the length of the say the length of the season is really what's controlling the the harvest overall. But I, I like what you said there, you know, about if there's if the bag limit was reduced, then hunter satisfaction is likely to go up. So now we're talking about a group of people that aren't as pissed off all the time and complaining mm-hmm. about everything. And and to another point that you brought up, the pressure is going to go down because you are going to have groups that reset limit quicker and yep. more often and they're mm-hmm. going to leave the field too. So yeah. but again, that's where you know, AHM is looking at that strictly from a a harvest perspective and a harvest tool, not so much a hunter satisfaction situation. Yeah. And, and and game management. Because, I mean, there's more to managing the ducks than just simply shooting them and having them on your strap. You know, as, as we all know, the pressure involved. Um, I mean, I see it on, on places where I hunt, where you, there's places where you can watch guys shoot in front of you and maybe they get a flock in that you didn't get in and and i i mean this is kind of a tangent but there's things i'd love to see that would that would change the pressure that wouldn't necessarily impact how many ducks we could shoot but would impact the way we we had to shoot and was you know whether we we close um you know we maybe close uh, uh the season down earlier in the day or close the day down you know 12 o'clock or one o'clock limits or shotgun shell limits on places to keep people from taking those marginal shots that simply just scare birds. You, know, you watch a flock of 15 mallards go into a, a, a setup in front of you 200 yards away and you hear 15 shells go off and you watch one dump and one sail. And I mean, that takes it's 20 flocks for those guys to get their limit because they're shooting marginal shots <clears throat> rather than, you know, if you, control that pressure a little bit more by saying you can only have X amount of shells in your boat per person. All of a sudden now those guys have to work a little harder at hiding. They have to, you know, do their decoy spreads different and learn how to hunt better. And you can limit that pressure that way too. And, and still in the process have better hunter experiences and shoot more ducks, but overall put less pressure on ducks because of it. Yeah, we have that here. Um, and, and, yeah, and, I know. and frankly had to, uh, it was just, it was out of control and I'm, you know, some will say it, it hasn't really helped. People still take marginal shots. They still, 
shoots winged up, you know, all the things uh, that that was supposed to <clears throat> prevent. But um, I mean, it's definitely better than letting them take whatever they want to in there. Yeah. Um, do they think? Do you think yeah. that's because they they don't expect to shoot a limit, anyways? Yeah, I don't think that like many people go into a... our public land expecting to shoot a limit. I mean, there's people that that do and know how, and know what they're doing. Uh, like mm, really know what they're, they're up, doing and they're at, uh, at the boat race every morning. Well, yeah, and all that, but they—I mean—they just know places to go. They know when to go in there. They just—they've mm-hmm. got a—they got a method to their madness that works. And and those guys have success. But the masses that go in there and oh, I want to hunt the timber in Arkansas, or you know, they their field they lease a field somewhere and they're like, well, let's let's hunt the timber. Let's go to you know one of our GTRs and and chase them. They're just chasing. They're 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 not going to have success in the modern day public land hunting here. Um, no, it's a whole different world. Yeah, and it's. And it, I mean, they would truly almost have to run into them. Um, you know, just had to be standing underneath the spot that those ducks wanted to be that day. But um, mm-hmm. it's just it's just tough in there. And and there's studies that uh, I know Doctor Askren has a GPS transmitter mapping where he tracks these ducks and you can see them go from one by one side of Biomita fly over the wildlife management area and land on the other <laughs> side. And there's a reason for that. And and everybody wants to go, well, the, you know, they're not managing the water, right. And they're not doing this right. And they're cutting too many trees. Big part of that reason is the pressure part. Hmm. Um, oh, you, you can see it everywhere. I mean, I see it. it I laugh every year. Oh, being from Minnesota, I still am on a couple of Facebook groups from minnesota waterfowl hunting things and it never fails that every single year the last 15 years one week after the season or maybe even three or four days after the season you're going to see the same guys post in the same areas great the dnr cut us short in our season again there's ducks everywhere now four days after the season like, do you guys really think that the ducks just showed up <laughs> four days after the season? Or do you think they were around somewhere, but just where you couldn't hunt them? And now you're seeing them because there's nobody hunting that slough and that field and whatever else with you know, six boats in it or, you know, a hundred dozen goose decoys in it. Like people under, they underestimate what that pressure does. And the minute you take it away, those ducks are back in there. <clears throat> yeah. We have a, you put, we have a good lab around a, here. A hundred boats. You put a hundred boats yeah. on a hundred boats on a spot around here. There's a couple of places that are like that. I mean, I mean, those ducks aren't smart. If they're stupid, they're, they die. So if they, they learn real quick what to do and what not to do. And as soon as the, uh, as soon as that pressure subsides, they're right back in there again. But when there's 50 rigs chasing around everywhere, well, they learn pretty quick, those boundaries of where they can and can't go. <clears throat> Have the have the mud motors have the mud motors made an appearance in South Dakota? Oh my god! Oh my god! Have they? Yeah. Um, you know, on a lot of our on a lot of our spots, they don't really provide a big advantage, and I do not run one. Um, there's one area that I really like to hunt. It's one of my favorite places to shoot a mallard in the world. And 15, 20 years ago, you had spots that the ducks could get into. And unless someone was going to walk, those ducks were safe in those spots, which I loved. I love having refuges around um, because the way I hunt is, and some of my buddies will will get pissed at me for this, but 
I don't want to hunt the X. I want to hunt, you know, a half mile or a quarter mile away, knowing which way they're coming from or which way they're going, get underneath them. And we can hunt those same ducks for, you know, a week sometimes as long as we used to be able to hunt them for a week. Now everybody can get into everything and they'll, you know, they'll bust through cattails and they'll bust through fragments and they'll jump a sandbar. And they'll get back in on these spots that no one was hunting before. And those guys, and I mean, and for sure, they give it to them. They go and have a banger hunt. But then those ducks are gone. And hunting in the area suffered because of it. And, you know, and I mean, not that they owe it to anybody else to leave those ducks at there. But um, there's definitely ways I think that would be be more productive overall for everybody and themselves if if we left those and made those ducks inaccessible. Um, so for sure they've, they've made an appearance. I mean, we've got the guys that you hear them start their motor up three miles away and you, sh- you shine them at the spotlight in the morning and they drive by and they got earmuffs on because the motors are so loud and chasing up every duck and, you know, within a mile. So we've got them and, and they're here. And I, I certainly wish there was some, at least like a noise restriction on them or something. I don't think that we may don't have to have mud motors, but. The way they're used and the way they're utilized has, has absolutely changed um, hunting around here. Yeah, same same here. And I think our our regulatory agency, you know, the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission is going to face some some real tough decisions uh, regarding those because there's there is definitely an audience that believes the ducks don't go to the public ground here anymore because of the prevalence of those things and in the way. And, and I don't know if they do this in South Dakota. Maybe you can elaborate on this, but you know, what's gone on here to a, to a large degree, especially with the younger hunter and the um, uh, newer hunter, which aren't always the same thing, um, because you, you could be mm. a younger hunter that grew up with a good mentor or, you know, you were the yeah. dad and you kind of learned that you don't, you yeah. just don't go doing this all day. Well, we've got a contingency that's, that's definitely trying to justify, I guess, owning a $30,000 boat. <laughs> But they don't really kill a whole lot of ducks, but they will ride that damn boat all day long in those woods <laughs> doing quote mm-hmm. unquote scouting. Scouting. Uh, yeah. And most of, sometimes get, it's for concept, you know, for content. I mean, they're just trying to roam the woods so they can get their phone out and film, you know, a bunch of ju- ducks they jump up. Uh, or jumping a log. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, whatever it is. And so <laughs> these motors just run nonstop at a, at a not in not in a big spread out expansive area we're talking in these little little small gtrs that we have and you have to trust the people that hunt in there that believe that they're they're that they're this kind of problem that why would a duck ever want to sit down in these woods with all these boats running around they get, they get chased either either they get directly chased out by seeing the boat or the sound yeah there, there's no question it's changed i mean the last time so last time I hunted Arkansas, I guess it was only a few years ago. And it was, we did not do, I think we had one good day out of three, <clears throat> but there was just boats everywhere. Everywhere you went, there was boats running by you, running by you. And then the last time we had a, a really, really good hunt, was it like a few or f- three or four good days right in a row um, on Donaldson. And there was, we found an area that we had to walk in, you know, three quarters of a mile and someone probably could have run up in there with a surface drive uh, but no one had found it and I, just, I don't think you would ever find that again anymore where i mean there was 
we probably had 5,000 ducks around us. And I, I can't imagine that ever occurring anymore, which is how easy it is for people to get around now. So it, it's changed that. It's changed ours. I mean, definitely. It, it has definitely negatively impacted the the greater good. There's the guys that are willing to, to go out and scout and drive and bust you that stuff. And they're going to go find those birds. And I take, I'm, and, and maybe I just need to get one and just say, screw it and have the same attitude as everybody else. But I don't even like to scout with my outboard after, you know, other than I take usually the direct, most direct route back to the boat launch. I try to get in and out. So I'm not kicking up other ducks thinking, God, maybe if I leave, if I don't chase up these little birds here, those birds there, we can get them the next day. But I mean, in the back of my mind, as I'm doing that, I'm, I'm knowing that someone is going to be putting their boat in at two o'clock in the afternoon, driving around till four o'clock, chasing up every little hole they can find. And then they kick out 50, which they think is a lot. And then they go hunt that and then they probably shoot them. But it just, it isn't good for the, I mean, there, there's nothing that good, good that comes out of it besides for those guys. And again, you know, they don't owe it to anybody else. It's not, there's no law that says they have to do that. And, and it's kind of goes back to that mentality of, you know, the me, 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 and, and they're going to, they're going to go get their docs, whatever it takes. So it's a different mentality that's out there and and that when mud motors have certainly ushered that in and kind of grown that problem i think a little bit whereas before people people in the spots i hunt they didn't even like to boat around sometimes because it, there can be stuff that gets in the way and there's underwater dangers that people are afraid of with an outboard and you know you just don't have any of that fear you just drive right over whatever and if you hit something just put the hand around further until you're over it all the way <laughs> yeah, and, so, yeah and there's yeah there's the and the problem we see here, and I don't know if it exists there, but another, and it kind of piggybacks off of what you just said, you know, we've got, we've got a group of very vocal hunters, public land hunters that have this desire, expectation, whatever it is, that the game and fish should be able to produce habitat as good as the private or as close to as the private GTRs <laughs> in the state, mm -hmm. um, which is that's pretty far-fetched request um but part of that you could manage all you want to if you don't align the the human pressure that you put on them because on private timber they're not riding around in their boat all day uh they're scouting no, you know, uh, walking they're scouting they've got places they can view them without bothering them um, peek up over the level all that all that stuff is as stealthy yeah. as you can be and we've and yep. in the public woods here we've got the opposite um yeah. so i don't know if that drive till you drive till you drive till you scare them up yeah and so i mean yeah, that's, that's that's a factor and and i enough pe people need to start connecting the dots on that um or otherwise yeah, they're, the, they're never going to see the ducks in there like they, they like they want i mean nothing will ever i mean nothing will ever override lack of pressure to make a spot good that's always going to be i mean you could have poor habitat but no pressure and more likely to have ducks there than you are on primo habitat with significant pressure and we we see it here i mean you know with our license system the way it is you know we, we are not overrun with with hunters and and that's the only reason that we are even a decent hunting state because we've controlled that if we opened our license up we'd be we'd be worse than most other states because we really don't have that much much that much of our state is not 
really productive waterfowl habitat, maybe a third of it. And if and if it and if you went and um, open that up, it, it'd be blown. It'd be blown out immediately. But you can go and, and you can find ducks. Um, like it almost doesn't do any good to have to have a ton of private um, pre-lined up spots around here because of those ducks they may never even touch that slough. Like a slough that I love. I'm like this place is perfect. It's got cool little pockets. It's got some nice points for every wind and sun direction. And you know we can get our boat in and hide. Awesome. But you may never even see any concentration of ducks on those because they never got pushed to that spot because they were on a spot two miles away. And if they didn't get pushed off that one, they'll stay there. Or they'll maybe they'll go to the the next little body of water over or the next body of water because we're not getting every every piece of water isn't getting hunted every day. I mean, most pieces of water don't even get hunted in a year probably if they don't have ducks on them. So you've got you've got just such a better pressure control system and. And it's hard for people to talk about it. I mean, a bunch of my buddies, I, I've talked about it on this other area that I hunt where the pressure is not controlled. And I've always wanted the the other state that's involved to to put some limits on on licensing on that. And all my buddies are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then as soon as they move out of state, no, maybe we shouldn't do that. You know, because it's their own, you know, they have to give something up then again to make hunting better. So I understand it, but. You know, until until those things happen in some of these high pressure states, I mean, I don't know how you expect to get it better, no matter what you do to the habitat, whether even if you double the amount of of land, I don't think it would matter because just more people would come then. Yeah. Do you have, uh, does South Dakota have a an outfitter industry of any size? Very little. Very little, um, yeah. And it's, and it's because of our own, that's a whole other story. The, there's a couple of, like, I mean, one of my best friends is an outfitter and he does it real small scale. He's got, you know, runs himself and one guide and, and they daily spots and, and so other people can still hunt it. And there's one other guy that's got a huge gigantic, he's a Tony Vandemore wannabe and, you know, got the, a huge lodge built for him and, and his dad is friends with a lot of legislators and they, you know, try to get laws changed to allow more licenses in their areas and and it's worked for them and but outside of that the way our our um our licensing system is and it doesn't it doesn't really lend to an outfitter system because you can't guarantee that those clients are going to get licenses every year and i mean i love it you don't have to go anywhere and hardly there's there's definitely a few like small time guys like all these places you know a kid that's got a 16 or 12 foot trailer they're going to be a guide for a couple of years and they go and do it and decide it's not as fun as they thought it was or <laughs> whatever the deal is. And, and they get out of it. Um, but there's not, a, there's definitely, I mean, it 0% like what you guys have. I mean, it's, there's nothing like that in this whole state. So, so do I can only name do, maybe two or three outfits. Do the, do the guides and, and the do it yourselfers, do they, I mean, do they, can they ride around, scout, find something, go knock on a door, get permission is, does that work in South Dakota? It does. Yep. Yeah. You're not guaranteed to, to get on every time. Um, like I had not been in the Northern part of the state for a few years. We just had so much water for a while that I didn't really have to go up there. And, and this year I went up that way more. And, and even in some of the more pressured areas, you definitely, I definitely got told no a fair amount, but if you look around enough, you'll get into the certain places. Um, and I probably had a, I don't know, 25, 30% percent 
success rate, yes rate, I would say. And the same in North Dakota, even, you know, where there's, I mean, that's changed unbelievably since I went there the first time 20 some years ago, but we still got on some stuff there. Um, it's doable. You know, I mean, whereas in Arkansas, but you guys, I mean, that people would laugh at you if you knocked and said, Hey, I see you've got some ducks behind your house. You think I could go hunt? I mean, you know, of course not, but it's definitely still doable. Most of these Midwest States, I would say it's doable. Um, it's the, your lack of your success rate is probably going down every year just because of how many more people are doing it. I mean, I live, I live 40 miles or so from, from uh, Sioux Falls, which is our biggest town. And then about an hour, a little over an hour to uh, Brookings, which is uh, our uh, South Dakota State University. And it's become known as, if you live in the Midwest States, it's become known as the place to go if you're a uh, young kid that wants to duck hunt while you're in college. <clears throat> and I'll run into kids from South Dakota State driving an hour to scout every night when I'm out in some places around home here. And I couldn't ever have imagined that when I was you know, 19 years old, scouting, driving an hour every night after school to scout. <clears throat> but that's just the way it is right now. You know, these guys that are here are doing so much more than, than we ever did when we were younger. I mean, God, if, if I was 20 years old and we, if we hunted 30 miles from home, like that was an adventure. You know, we were, we were going somewhere new, like a whole different area that we'd, we'd heard about, but had never gone over to. Now it's, you know, you're 18 years old and get in your truck and go cruise and they just do it. Uh, Bill, is it, is it South Dakota that did not allow non-resident hunters until like the seventies? You know, someone else mentioned that and I was going to look it up, but I never did. So I, I don't know if that's the case. Um, I want to say that it is. And it was something after World War II, they stopped non-resident hunting, mainly I think for upland bird hunting, but in general, they, they stopped non-resident. I, I think it's South Dakota. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure. I'll have to look that up because somebody else brought that up at one point. Um, you know, it's definitely gone the opposite now because for pheasants, I mean, my God, we have <clears throat> unbelievable amount of people coming in the state for uh, mm -hmm. for pheasant hunting um, every year. I'm supposed to go in November. And Oh, really? Yeah, Aberdeen, up around Aberdeen. I went two years, oh, two yeah. years ago. We're okay. supposed to go back this year. Yeah, that's a good idea. Well, I found it. it when I first kind of heard that, I found it really interesting because you know, Arkansas limits some non-resident access uh on state owned ground at times, and it's mm -hmm. kind of a hot button issue here. Um so it was curious to me or interesting that that a state would ban it kind of in general, and then they've since gone back on that some. So how does like the license system there work? You've missed it a couple of times, but is it for a non-resident, so, is it yeah, kind of a draw system? It is. It's a lottery system. Um, and there's a few different options that you can get licenses for. You can you can get a 10-day license that's good for most of the state. Um, you can get some three-day licenses that are good for small little sections. Um, and they and they have some licenses now that they've come out with to take care of these outfitters that are um, geared more towards private land in certain certain chunks of ground and you can get those as a separate option and you know a few years ago like we weren't even drawn out like they went the first the first draw wouldn't even wouldn't even uh fill out so there were surplus licenses 
Um, that's not been the case the last three or four years. Um, but the way we do it, I think, is is the way. Like, I know Kansas right now is is fighting over what to do or what not to do. I know Arkansas did it um, with uh, limiting non-residents to certain places on certain certain days, and I feel like that just kind of that that system just kind of shuffles the pressure around. It, it pushes who's hunting to different days, whereas with the lottery, you actually control how many people come in. Um, and I think that's kind of the way. It, and and I'm all whether and. Even when I didn't live in South Dakota, I was happy that South Dakota had this lottery system because when you drew a tag, like you knew you were going to have a good hunt. You could go find somewhere to hunt that wasn't going to have 20 other boats or 10 other trailers pulled up at it and waiting to get into a field at midnight or something like that. It's not that there's no pressure, but it, it's definitely controlled. And it's, I mean, someone coming from Arkansas would say we had no pressure, um, but we definitely do have some. But we're able to, you can pretty much re- reliably guarantee how much pressure is going to be in any given area on any time of the year based on, you know, when people are coming, when they're going to use their first five days of license, when they're going to use the last five days of license. Um, and it's, to me, it's the best way. And I wish, I wish all these places, any, any state that was deemed a, uh, um, God, I had a word for it before. A, um, destination like a high traffic destination yeah a de- destination state you know would, would put something like in that and you know and figure out how many resident hunters you'd have how many non-resident hunters you can have and still provide a quality experience and then set your lottery at that and let it run and see what happens <clears throat> yeah and you can always make exceptions for some of the private land stuff because you know that doesn't that's not going to affect your guys just going there showing up and hunting and uh, uh you know come and hunt on their, their own diy type deal that's not going to affect them in, in a state like that anyways because it's already so privatized yeah ours is definitely a work in progress when it comes to the, the public side and I, of course you can't regulate the private side because yeah we have a large contingency of out-of-state yeah, ownership um in farms yeah. and duck clubs and everything else but the, on the public side it's definitely shuffled people around just like you're saying because they'll they may be closed from access on state managed uh ground and it just pushes them to the yeah just pushes them to the federal ground and crowds that for the the window until they can bounce back to the to a wma so it's a work in progress and and they're working on it they're trying to find you know a, a good compromise and a good fit but but they're not there yet um i'd put in I'd put in every single year for Arkansas if that was the case. And I'd go there, you know, if we could cut the pressure even in half on those places would be a gigantic improvement. No, no doubt. And I'd go there gladly every year if I, as I drew and I do it, I do it happily. But right now I just don't really want to go fight that battle that much anymore. Yeah. There's not many that do. Um, and no. you kind of got like you were talking about earlier. You got these gangs that that kind of roam the woods, kind of roam the woods, and kind of control things. <laughs> it's not quite the you know the gang mentality of back when they could guide on there. Um, no, we've, we've talked about that on past shows, but but there definitely mm-hmm. are some some groups that are uh, you know out there kind of running things, um, and everybody else just kind of hopes to maybe see a duck. Um, so yeah, that's kind get of, the scraps. Yeah, get the scraps. But 
that's the that's the world we live in uh right now as far as that goes but uh but yes so we're kind of running up you know at the time we like to kind of keep these two uh where we think we (laughs) had gone to an audience long enough um not that this hadn't been engaging and good but um we've you know you're you're pretty opinionated guy um so I figured this, we don't always ask this question. We kind of set out to always ask this question. And then we kind of started <laughs> running into episodes that strung out too long and we had to just dump it. So, and we hadn't asked it in a while, but I, I thought it'd be appropriate to ask you because you've got a good perspective and, and see a lot of things, go a lot of places and all that. But um, we'll give you the, you know, if you could change one thing in modern day duck hunting, uh, what would it be? I'm going I'm to throw you that question and see, kind of curious what you have to say. I've got a list of like 20 things that I always keep in my phone that I think would improve duck hunting, but, (laughs) um, the things that I've seen would probably be something that would involve controlling the pressure, controlling, controlling hunting pressure on particular spots in particular places. I think that would have the biggest impact on the quality of hunting, um, that people went to on my, like I would, I would personally rather not hunt somewhere every year, but when I went, that that hunt was you know top notch, or even even had a, a reasonable chance of having a quality hunt. And I don't, and by that I don't mean shooting a limit of ducks every day, but not having someone set up fifty yards away from you, not having someone calling all your ducks off you, and every every duck being a battle. Um, so I think I think that's probably my my biggest thing, um, you know, that directly would impact hunting. And then, you know, if you want to just take a little broader view, um, you know, just figure out a way where we can switch the flow of uh, the social media impact to something more positive and give the people with, with the good voices you know, uplift, uplift those more and make those the popular ones as opposed to everybody out there just running and gunning and banging everything up and, and making that the focus. Um, I think that would, that in itself would maybe cause enough of a, of a mind shift in some people to cure some of the other ales on my list that would, uh, that would help hunting in general. Yeah, that uh, I don't know, Brent. That may be one of the better answers we've had certainly in a while. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And uh, we couldn't agree with more on both of those things. Um, and maybe that you know part of that's probably got to do we've we've all all three of us have been in the game a while and kind of seen highs, lows, OKs, everything else. We we've hunted before social media. We've obviously hunting during it. I guess social media will never go away, so there won't be an after. Uh, It'll. It's here. It. I always wonder what, and I've, I've talked to a bunch of friends of mine. I, I feel like if we, if all banding projects used bands that incinerated the minute that that band was taken off the leg, <laughs> and if you if pile picks were made illegal, I legitimately think we would lose twenty five to thirty percent of our hunters. I think you would lose that many people that would be out of it if those two things were were done. Yeah. 
That's it. You know, I, when I look, when I look through social media, I mean, the things that that seem to be popular are, you know, guy or uh, putting as many people you can in the blind and shooting the biggest pile and mm-hmm. shooting bands and shooting some weird duck and whatever all that kind of stuff. Like none of the other stuff even gets mentioned almost all the time. So if if what what we're posting as a collective group tells us what we value. I mean, those are the things that value that are, that are shown to us way more often than, you know, someone with their kid hunting or someone talking about what a cool morning it was because such and such happened or whatever, you know, that's the stuff that you never hear about, but you see all the stuff that we don't like. We don't, we don't want to generally pre- pretend like we project to the non-hunting world but that's exactly what we're projecting to them is that we don't care mm-hmm. about the experiences and the resource. We care about all these things that we can get out of it. <clears throat> yeah. And those, those things you listed there are generally the, the biggest pissing contest, you know, who, who kills oh, the most sure. bands or yeah. most ducks. And it's funny. I would say, I suspect that the people that are complaining the most about the scouting or the culture, all the things that are wrong in duck hunting are probably the ones on social media sharing those posts, liking those posts, and giving those mm-hmm. posters the platform that they have. We we control the message. Well, Just for stop sure. following the stuff. Yeah, get but, rid of it. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's like I said, like I'm pretty quick with the unfollow button. If, if someone I started liking and they, they turn to that, I'm quick to get rid of it. I just Ugh, just the grossest feeling seeing that stuff and and I, I think that would that would change a lot i mean i'm not it's not gonna it's not gonna cure all the ills but it would certainly make people feel better about it i know that you know the pile the pile pictures with no context are just what kind of crawl all over me um yeah, it's I like, mean, where do you where do you get out yeah. of it i mean it, okay yay you shot 20 mallards in a cornfield with 10 spinners running i mean anyone i could literally put go tell my mom to go sit out in the cornfield and do that. And she could pull the trigger. She'd probably, she'd probably do the same thing. Like it doesn't shooting, a, killing a mallard duck is not like some stroke of genius. I mean, there's people who are better at it for sure, but it's not that part of a task. And we make yeah. it seem like it's this monumental thing we just did. And I mean, I, I mean, I take a picture every hunt, but I'd never post. I mean, and if I do, like I'm going to provide a whole bunch of other pictures and a story to go along with and why, I like that hunt. Yeah. Not just simply just to show, not just to show a bunch of dead ducks because I mean, there's kids that are 16 years old that are doing it on their third hunt. It's not, it doesn't have to be that hard of a thing. So, but I'm, I, I certainly had a phase where I did that too. Though, so. Until I, well, that's yeah. It was something we we're talking about earlier. We we're talking about the, the hunters that are leaving the sport and the, the new hunters don't really account for the old. And I wanted to bring that up then and we moved on too quick, but that's the other thing is as we introduce new hunters and, and we push old hunters out, mm-hmm. we're changing the the stage of the hunter as a demographic. So we've oh, got yeah. a lot more hunters now that are in that hill way, stage. And every time an old hunter quits, yep. it's tougher to replace him. Yeah. And, and you know, they don't have the same voice in the public mm-hmm. realm as the young ones do now either. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if someone, if I were to post something and I've got a big, long, a big, long Instagram post i've had it in drafts for uh, probably a couple of weeks now because i'm just like hesitant to post it but it's about 
it's kind of about that stuff I was talking about earlier. You know, what do we value? What do we show that we value? And I'm just, I'm sure when I do it, I'll just be called a boomer and you're old and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, unless like the people like us talk about it, like, I mean, I even wrote, I got something I'm looking at now. I said, 20 years ago, it was the straight meat mentality. And I was part of that. Like, I wanted to be part of the straight meat Jeff Foyles crew, you know, for well, at least a couple months until I kind of <laughs> fell out of that. But I mean, but it's the same thing. And, and, you know, we could fall into it, but I had other people that were around me that, you know, I looked up to when we're kind of like, oh, you don't want to be involved with that. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Like that, that makes sense. But I, I don't, that's not why I like hunting. That's not what it's about for me. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if, if the, if there isn't that group of us out there trying to portray the other side of it, I mean, we're just going to be overrun with, the the numerous voices on the other side no that's a that's a fact um and that's how things have changed you know we've we've talked about it a few times how we just don't i just don't remember my dad ever just you know being braggadocious about killing ducks and 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 he's he shot a bunch of them um and Mm -hmm. my grandfather before that and now it's just a there's a this element of this chest thumping that it's turned into and that's oh, for just, sure. that's just not where that's just not where we want to be that's not the long-term play um and and we and i think you're right i think that draft message I, that you've got saved up i, I mean at some point you got to send it because if mm-hmm. if we don't speak up and kind of offer a different perspective you're right the the other perspective is going to dominate um, what everybody sees and thinks and believes this is what duck hunting is and and there's there's just so much more to it than that and got to turn that tide and just control the narrative <clears throat> yeah that's a that's uh lee lee loves that one uh loves that oh yeah it's a big agenda of his yep. and, and right now it's a little out of control so um that's why we we thought it'd be awesome to have you on the show knew, knew where your thoughts kind of aligned and and all that and i hope we introduce some some other people to you uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on here today with us. Oh, it's fun. Good, good chat. And I need to vent a little bit anyway. So yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, there wow. you go. Yeah, we could do that. Uh, we could do that uh, for hours, I'm sure. Oh God. It'd be endless. Yeah. My text messages between a few of us are just this stuff over and over. So yeah, we're we're kind of the same. Uh we just we'll we'll run across or see something and just go, uh, what in the world? Yeah, why would you do this? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. boy. Yeah. Well, uh, listeners, we oh. hope you enjoyed this episode of The Standard Sportsman. We're going to wrap this one up and, and get ready for uh, for continuing this. We've had a few people ask whether we were going to gap this out you know, during the offseason or change anything up, but our plan is to keep plowing ahead uh, weekly. We've got a, a lot of good guests lined up and a lot of ideas on shows. And so we're going to, we're going to keep plowing forward with, uh, some weekly content, uh, as we've been doing, even though it's the off season, cause there's plenty to talk about and, and plenty of people to talk to. So, uh, keep looking for us weekly. You can follow us online at www.thestandardsportsman.com and on social media at the standard sportsman. Thanks. And we'll see you next time. Light boots. The lightest pair of knee boots you're ever going to find. Weighed in at just 13 ounces each. Putting on a pair of light boots is truly a jaw-dropping experience.